Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's edition of Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness. I'm Todd Furness, and I'm really elated to be joined by Robert Palmer. Uh, Robert is uh, going to be, you're going to just get to love him. He's a fantastic guy. He's just some very innovative stuff. And we're going to get into that in just a second. Uh, as always, I like to encourage people to uh, like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. We're always keen to get as much support as we can. We think these conversations are important. They're not normal in the in today's world because they're a little bit more thoughtful and deep than a lot of conversations around complicated topics where the listeners t- typically look for simple answers. And uh, for many of these topics, there aren't simple an- answers. So with that, let's dive into it. Robert, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to talk about uh, a new topic. We've been talking a lot on this show about uh, the issues in the healthcare industry. We've talked about broadband as well, uh, but a lot of focus around healthcare for the recent, uh, for the most recent five months or so. And one of the issues that we've been focused on is the issue of pricing transparency. And we've gotten a lot of traction on that. People are very interested in it. Uh, obviously, uh, the prior president, uh, President Trump, signed into law something called the Pricing Transparency Act. And there's been a lot of movement around that. There's not been a lot of compliance with it, but there's been a lot of movement around it. And we've spoken to guys like Leon Wisniewski, who has got a company uh, that's focused on gathering all that data. We've got to talk to another guy who's doing some very, very creative work named Bill Hennessy, who has a company called Pratter. And he's also doing some very innovative work around uh, pricing transparency and really make bringing that to bear with regard to the consumption of healthcare. But what you're doing is actually really, really intriguing to me because what you're focused on is, uh, and I'm using your term, uh, protocol transparency. So talk a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this topic. Yeah, so my my training is in economics and building risk models. So um, talk about predictive models. I've been involved in doing that for, for nearly 30 years now. Um, and I've worked in many different industries and have been focused on healthcare for going on now 20 years. Um, the original work de- de- derived from looking at outcomes in cardiac surgery. And w- with, a, with a key question there is um, patient acuity, uh, pre- pre- presenting different treatment options ba- based upon the, uh, um, the, the other health problems that the patient has com- combined with the um, treatment options that, that, that would layer on over that. So when you talk about protocol transparency, um, protocols are, are typically derived from the outcomes of clinical trials and the participants in the clinical trials are generally younger, healthier, less racially and ethnically diverse populations. And therefore, what we see is a, um, a narrow swath of, of outcomes associated with the definition of protocols. Meanwhile, the general population swath is wide. So big variation in the general population, small variation in the protocol population. Therefore, when you look at um, do the protocols 
uh, um, work for the general population? The, the, the answer is questionable. So already you said so much, and I want to start with uh, something you may not be expecting, a little bit of a curveball. One of the things that's been interesting is uh, I've gotten a lot of requests for interviews and over the last five months. And well, that's flattering and nice. What's been interesting is that there are large swaths of the media who don't want to talk to me because I have a JD. I'm a lawyer by training and a, a kind of a, a practicing a practitioner economist, if you will, who does macro and microeconomic studies for fun, uh, which makes me weird anyway, of course. But uh, what's interesting is that because I don't have an MD at the at the back of my name, uh, there are large swaths of the media who don't want to talk to me at all about anything related to healthcare or healthcare policy. And one of the things that I like to talk about from a political perspective is the notion that. You know, it wouldn't be un it wouldn't be surprising that cultural change emanates or originates from the arts, you know, comedians and and uh, thespians and others who want to challenge the status quo or the or the trend. So here you are, you're an economist, right? By training, you're doing financial and and other risk models, and you bring that lens to bear on the problem of protocols and medical outcomes in a way that most physician groups would not, you know, not think of, nor even ever consider actually asking you to help with. So how did you break through that barrier first? Yeah, well, it's an excellent question. It's a barrier that I deal with, frankly, personally, you know, what, what do I know about this is a, a question that I would ask myself. And, and um, the, the answer to that is I work closely with clinicians, uh, um, epidemiologists, biostatisticians. So each of us brings something to the mix that we can measure and that we can add to the models. And, and it's critically important that I discuss the um, for development of these models with the clinicians, because there are many patient uh, um, or diagnosis types that, that, that don't apply to different procedural uh, uh, um, approaches, for instance. So if you're looking at metastatic cancer as an example, many times those, those, patients aren't candidates for, for surgical treatments. Therefore, if we build models around, you know, let's discuss outcomes for metastatic cancer patients that receive surgery, um, that would be a small group. And many times those patients aren't being treated for cure, They're, it's, a, it's a palliative treatment. So as, an, as someone with a financial background, I have no clue about that. So I, I, I would uncover outcomes that, that, would, that would be um, noisy. And, and so um, having the clinicians give us a, a good idea of what are the well-worn paths within the, the treatment, within the data sets that we can see. And we can see that from behind the scenes with the size of the sample of, of different uh, um, procedures that we see in, in different patient types. So we can, we can understand what's being done and how frequently. Now, the, the question is maybe, a rare treatment would have an effect and we need to be able to uncover that too. So it's a really nuanced question that, that um, we need clinicians to weigh in and on as well. And so the idea of uh, it takes a village, right? Uh, it takes a number of disciplines to kind of come to a look at the problem and bring each of those tool sets to bear on solving it. Correct. Yeah. And if you have a, um, a, a physician lens, you're, you're really focused on providing treatment to the patient. It's what you're trained to do. Um, they, and, and helping them in any way that you can. And, and you're doing that in large part with a lack of information on a risk-adjusted basis associated with outcomes. 
So you're doing the best you can with what you know, which is what you were trained to do. And we ask bigger questions. And, and also from a patient lens, you're coming into a physician to receive treatment. So if you come into um, a physician's office and he indicates that, you know, with the with the other health issues you have or with, with, the, um, with, with the age that, that you're presenting, that this treatment may not help and it may harm you. You as a patient may walk away and say, you know, I, I don't wanna work with this physician. I'm gonna to go to somewhere where they're gonna actually provide what I want, which is treatment. Well, well, meanwhile, the physician may have had your best interests in, in, in mind, but you as a, a, a consumer of, of, of healthcare are really wanting more because more is certainly better and also your family is wanting you to be treated more is certainly better. So this is a really complicated web that, that uh, um, patients uh, uh, are, are in, in, the, in the center of and trying to figure out. So once again, you said a whole lot there. I want to try and unpack it just a little bit because I want to underscore the notion that as a general rule, uh, physicians, nurses, and, and other clinicians tend to be very, very compassionate and very mission-oriented. Their goal is to solve the problem, the healthcare problem that the patient presents to them, and they and the clinicians want to do so using the best tools at their disposal, uh, and all of, and the sum of all their education, which means that the quest, in my view anyway, is noble in intent, but also can be unwittingly or unfortunately limited in perspective. And so in an effort to do this and, and to solve the problem as quickly as possible, they tend to uh, fall into one of two categories. And this is not unique to clinicians at all. I find this throughout business as well, where you're either a pattern recognizer or a problem solver. A pattern recognizer says, hey, I've seen something that looks like this before, a fact pattern that looks like this before, so I'm going to apply this solution because it's worked in the past. And what that leads to is simple answers to complex problems. And it's not uncommon that the, that the solution doesn't really work for a whole bunch of reasons, but it's really because the, the individual hasn't had the time or inclination or tool set to dig deeper. In this instance, the, in the second instance, there's a problem solver who actually takes a deeper look at the problem, disaggregates the elements of the problem, and then says, okay, now I need to, to take on a solution. So one of the things that was intriguing about your, your prior remark was the, the, uh, the set of of the population that was involved in the clinical trials being ten, tending to be fairly narrow in terms of its, of its demographic attributes. And so talk a little bit about, for example, just how something like age or race can vary the outcome of, based on the protocol used. Right, and it's an excellent question. It's foundational to a lot of work we do. Um, you know, a simple way to put it is sicker patients tend to do worse. And we would all accept that um, just on, on phase validity. Um, we can also agree that as, as patients age, they tend to have worse outcomes. Now combine those factors and also combine those factors associated with um, the, 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 the complications associated with just having the patient in the hospital, for instance. So uh, um, secondary infections, uh, falls, and so on. So we're taking patients that are by definition fragile, just to need a procedure, depending, and 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 uh, um, measuring the, the, those outcomes associated with the the different a, a approaches that we could take, or is 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 really important. And and the the challenge that we have with the clinical trial system is, in large part, they're designed to answer different questions. So so we're looking at 
um, getting a drug approved, um, isolating different aspects of a treatment. So we're, we're looking at uh, um, the, the uh, efficacy and, and, and versus a, a, a effectiveness question. And, and, and now we're asking um, patients to make and treatment decisions, physicians to make treatment decisions um, based upon a design that was meant for a, a government approval in large part. But, but what the patients want to know is, is this, is this clinically significant to me, which is really a different question. And that's where the importance of all the different patient attributes comes into play. Okay. So just, it has been a long windup in, in essence, but I, I, I kind of want to put these pieces together. So here's Robert, you know, N number of years ago, who is a smart guy, uh, done a lot of work with math, economics, and finance. And he says, Hey, you know, I, I think I'll just tackle a particularly grim topic. Now, wait a minute. How do you make that leap from going into, you know, the, from, from the world of finance into the world of, you know, what we're calling protocol transparency? What catalyzes that leap from point A to point B? And, and how could, you know, what, what caused you to feel like that was both a calling and uh, a fulfilling undertaking? Yeah, so really good question. Um, the when I would do work in in valuation of companies that could be in manufacturing, could be in in in, in the financial uh, um, world, uh, that was typical of the work that I did. If if I could find a company that had a five percent inefficiency, it was a it was a massive value that we could fix, and it, it would extrapolate to millions of dollars and. And, and equity value within in the company for, for acquisitions, for, for mergers, for, for um, improvements in operations. And the, the first work that I, I did in healthcare, I was looking at 50% differentials in, in improvement. And I'd never seen anything so efficient, inefficient. And, and so that was a, a, an eye-opening reality. And also on the other side of this are people's lives. So we can think about it this in, in financial terms, but also important are clinical outcomes. And in a lot of the work that, that we've done, we're seeing 30% of the treatments aren't helping. And therefore, if you go through a, a procedure that doesn't help, it harms you. And so we're seeing this on both sides of the equation. Uh, the the clinic, clinical aspect really derives the financial outcomes as well. And, and, and the inefficiency of the market really compelled me. And also a personal story rolls into this. While I was developing models in cardiac surgery, my, my own father was diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer. And now, now we had a personal question to ask you know, what, what treatment options were best for my father. And I assumed in, in cancer outcomes, there would be much more advanced models available than, than the work that we were doing in cardiac, but I was, I was wrong on that. Um, there was very little information available for metastatic patients, everything that I read pretty much made me want to throw up and, and uh, the outcomes were so dismal looking and, and yet we wanted to do something, which is a natural push. And, and my dad was otherwise healthy and, and uh, um, surely there was something that could be done. And, and that looking back, we made decisions that maybe we would have changed had, had we had better information. And just going through that process of seeing the effect of not only the cancer, but the addition of, of treatments to a patient, my dad in this case, who was already frail, 
was was really life changing to me, and I I felt like you know we could do better. We could play a role in helping to mitigate some, some of these challenges that that uh, families and patients are dealing with, and also uh, mitigate the the pain that uh, um, that the patients have to go through. Well, I, I'm sorry you went through that personal tragedy, uh, but it sounds like what you're trying to do is really make that into something that's really good for society and, and for the nation at large and, and potentially for other nations at large. Uh, so the implication of your, of your you know, tragedy is that you can turn, you're turning that into something that really could be powerful and moving and, and really substantially move the needle, not only in terms of saving tremendous amounts of money for the healthcare industry, but far more importantly, saving a tremendous number of lives in the process. Yeah, and, and that really is the, the goal. And that's something that I know my father would have wanted to happen because he 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 asked many people that went through treatment about their uh, um, experience. And what what he didn't have the awareness of is that actually someone that just went through prostate cancer alone that wasn't a metastatic patient really was a different patient group than, than he was in. Or if he would talk to a breast cancer patient or... Uh, you know, someone who went through colon cancer. Now, there there are aspects that are, that are relevant, but there are many aspects that aren't. And so, the ability to personalize this so that we can isolate you know, someone similar in age, someone that's similar in stage, someone that has similar other health issues, is critically important to supporting conversations and in in depth understanding of the of the trade offs associated with it. And it really gets back to the wisdom of the crowds, so that if we have a a narrow swath of patients participating in clinical trials, um, those patients aren't reflective of, of all the uh, um, outcomes that you might experience. And the other limitation in healthcare is we talk about predictive modeling. It, it, it's really difficult to, to pull that together where it's predictive to you as an individual. Rather, what we work on doing is, is, is providing information on you know, here are the outcomes. You have a 90% chance of survival. So therefore you have a 10% chance of death. I can't tell you if you're in the 90 or 10% group, but, but at least you go in knowing that, that, that these are the, these are the odds. And, and so I think understanding the limitations of what is, is available today with, uh, from a mathematical perspective is also of key importance so that people don't read too much, but they also don't read too little into the information that's available. So if you're okay with it, I'd like to kind of walk through the example of your father and the tool that you built and how it might have changed things, if you would. Uh, I think that's a, that's a powerful story and uh, has a bunch of implications that I'll, I'll dive into with you after that. So this is a picture of my dad when we found out that he had uh, um, cancer and, and, it had, and it spread to his liver and his, his lung. And it probably had spread to other places in his body that we weren't aware of. The challenge was that he appeared to us to be healthy. So for instance, the morning he was diagnosed with cancer, he jogged five miles. He was, he was functioning fine at work. He was, uh, um, looked good. And, and so the, the, the problem that we had was how can he be so sick? And he was really more frail than we knew. He was probably experiencing symptoms that he wasn't sharing with us. And his, if you could see clearly in this picture, he had um, a yellow appearance already in his eyes representing 
some issues going on with 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 his liver. But but with that being said, we wanted to do something. Surely there 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 was something we could do medically to um, to cure this illness or at least prolong his life. But that was the the starting point that we had uh, on on looking at treatment options for my dad. Now what we didn't have is information on patient outcomes specific to him, meaning that patients were the the uh, um, that were his age um, with his level of comorbidity and, and with, with cancer that already spread. And that had been very helpful for us to level set our understanding, because if you would have asked us, we'd have said, well, you know, potentially he could be treated for cure. Well, that really wasn't even on the table. Um, we didn't understand that fully. And we in large part heard what we wanted to hear and if we didn't hear what we wanted to hear from a certain physician, we would just go to a different physician where we heard more of what we wanted to hear, and then that the, the, then we would we would seek treatment from that physician. So that's a common common issue that uh, um, physicians have to deal with patients is, is expectations. So and also there have been many studies performed that show that very low percentages of patients, less than 5% of, of patients can accurately describe their prognosis even after meeting with physicians. And it's, and it really isn't the physician's fault. It's, it's the patients hearing what they want to hear. It's the, um, it, it, it's as you go through treatment, you might hear something from your, your physician that your tumors are responding to treatment. Therefore the patient hears they're getting better that what the physician's saying is I'm buying you time. And so all of these things intertwine and with clinical literacy issues, patient misunderstanding, and also unrealistic expectations combined that, that drive the push towards more treatment must be better. And in my dad's case is a good example where it, it wasn't better. And I'll, I'll move to an output of our, our models on my dad's case. So um, what we're looking at here is a chart that shows the uh, probability or likelihood of, of a patient surviving over five years, which is on the uh, um, the uh, horizontal axis in in zero to five, and then probability of survival, which is in the, in the vertical axis, and you can see 100% survival at the top, zero at the bottom, and and stretching it out to the five-year estimates in the general population, uh, a person like my father, 69 year old white male, would have, would have had about a 90% chance of living five years. But with the cancer diagnosis that he had, which is the, the highlight here, doing nothing, um, he had about a 40% chance of living five years. Okay, so and just pause can... on that for one second, if you would. So you said a couple of things that were gating attributes that were are important in the, in the protocol and the efficacy analysis, right? Which is, uh, your dad was 69 years old, so age is a is a is an attribute. He is a white guy, a white person, uh, that's an attribute, and he's a male, which is another attribute. So, 69 year old white male are three attributes that drive clinical outcomes. Is that right? Correct. And in my dad, and there's another attribute: um, his overall health. He had, in my dad's case, he had mild comorbidity. He had controlled. AFib, um, you know, high high blood pressure, and, and uh, um, some kid, kidney issues in the past. So, so if you take those in, into account, he, he had overall good health. But like many sixty nine year olds, he had some other 
other health issues still. Um, so another important attribute to take into account. Very good. And so what you found is that uh, if you had no treatment, his probability of survival of five years, in other words, the, the chance he would make it and live for another five years was 40.6%. Correct. And then if he did other things, what happened? And, and in my dad's case, which I, I want to, first of all, call this out. This is, this is an unusual case. This is a, 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 an anomaly, um, but, uh, um, but still occurs. In, in my dad's case, the addition of, of treatment didn't help his survival. And when we did analysis of patients similar to him that received each one of these um, treatment modalities, we, we, we actually see a, a worse prospect of, of survival. And it's very counterintuitive. It's, it's, it, it's relatively uncommon, but what we've seen here would be very valuable information for us because then we could go into the position and have a better baseline understanding that Wow, why why is this that 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 his outcomes are so poor and and his prognosis is so poor? Um, well, because he's a metastatic, uh, his, the cancer is spread. Um, he and and it spread to his, his liver and his lung. And so, if we added additional treatments, each each of these is going to have effect on all the systems. So there was a there's a logical uh, um, answer to, to 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 why this is the case, but. There's also an emotional component of processing this and understanding a that he's a terminal patient and there is no way that my dad, if you asked me at the time, you know, no, he's healthy. We're going to beat this. That that was the, the the sentiment that we carried, even though it was unrealistic. So the the ability for outcomes of similar patients that that are in large part you know, irrefutable. This is this is the experience that they had with these different treatment choices would level set and, and help us look back and say, we have to accept some of some of the realities of what we're dealing with. And, and here are the options that, that, that we have based upon um, the, the realities that we're dealing with. And we, we need to make a choice. And um, the, the choice may not always be the, um, doing more, but in many cases, the choice is doing more. So I, I want to draw that out that um, in some patients we see treatment as being incredibly helpful. Otherwise, we wouldn't see patients being treated as they do. But, but uh, um, it's important to know when you're going in what your expectations are. And it's much different for an early stage prostate cancer patient than in my dad's case where the, the cancer had already spread. And in fact, truthfully, there are two different groups of patients when you look at, look at their outcomes. So I'm looking at this chart and I'm thinking to myself, hey, I'm I'm at the at the uh, on the left hand side of this graph. I'm at the starting point at the top and then the left. And I'm a type A guy. I'm a type A personality. And yep. my reaction is, all right, darn it. We're going to tackle this thing full on head on. We're going to throw every stinking thing we can in the kitchen at it. We're going to leave no stone unturned. And that mentality, that mindset, that framework and and that approach will actually reduce my chance of survival by over half. That's right. In this case, I mean, so, uh, um, and that's really the important aspect of looking at these information. I don't want anyone to take away from this that we're killing people with treatment. That's not so. Um, it, it really depends on you as an individual 
and, and, and what your clinical factors are, whether the treatment is effective for you or not. And, and uh, that's- so there, are two, the, there are two points to that statement then that I really wanna make sure that everybody anchors on both of them, not just one, which is the first is more treatment is not always better. And the answer as to whether or not more treatment is better in your case is specific to your case. Correct. And I would also add additional layer. It's specific to your values and judgment. Um, some, someone might tell you that, look, if you, if you go through this treatment, there's a 3% chance it could, it could improve your survival. Um, and, it, it, and some patients might look at that and you say, well, it's greater than zero. I'm going to do it. Other patients might look at that and say, ask the additional question. Well, what is it? What's the quality, my quality of life and functioning going to look like during that period of time? And 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 that and that may override their their goal towards uh, um, lengthening their life. So this is a there's no right answer here. You can't look at a chart like this and say, okay, this is this is what's right for Todd. Um, this is what's right for Robert. Um, you know, the, no, this is the information that Todd and Robert need to make a decision, which is a whole different. Uh, um, approach that, that we're trying to take. Okay, very good. So this ha this one simple graph that I'm, I'm sure it took years and uh, millions of patients data patients data to uh, to create and, and present in such a an easy to understand format um, raises a whole bunch of questions, right? So the first question is you know, obviously around the personal issues with your dad and you, you unfortunately developed this after your dad had passed. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So, but it's now being, you know, made good use of to help others figure out what they should be doing. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the economic implications where you and I have a shared history. So all of a sudden you get this answer and you say, holy cow, my dad could have saved a whole lot of money in all probability. The insurance companies could have saved a lot of money. The hospital could have incurred a lot less expense. Uh, and far more importantly to me as his son, uh, my dad could have had better than a twice, a two X survival rate chance. Yeah. And, and that's the most important to all of us is, you know, I want my dad to live. Right. But, what what was the reaction to the to the industry when you when you highlighted this? The the reactions are really mixed. I mean, so this is a, this is obviously disruptive information, um, and and it really changes the the way that that, that we would look at outcomes. I, I don't argue that you know, this is the only information that, that patients should use to uh, um, make a treatment choice, not by a long shot, but this is in the an essential element I would want to know in, in every treatment that I would undergo and what are outcomes for individuals similar to me um, with, with, an, with an endpoint that matters to, 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 to me as, a, as a, a patient. So outcomes that matter to patients, critically important to measure and, and, and transparency around um, cl clinical outcomes. And, and so is, is from an industry perspective that that's challenging because we, we, we've in large part built the um, healthcare system in the United States based upon volumes. And so anything that could affect uh, um, 
volumes of, of treatments would 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 have a, a big impact on um, on on providers. But but I don't want to indicate that your providers are driving a problem here necessarily. It's also to, to patients. Um, we want treatment. We we assume that it's, it's going to help. We assume it's going to lengthen our lives. So. Uh, patients are, are are driving a, a lot of this as well, as well as uh, um, you can see uh, uh, um, in, in incentives from family members layering in. That if if you had a, a, a in in my dad's case, um, you know, me as a son, I would look at this and say, "Are you are, you're telling me you're going to do nothing for my father? Are you kidding me? I, you know, we're going to go somewhere else that, that they're they're going to that they're going to do something for him." So. So, so those are all important aspects for, for, for us to take into account when we're looking at you know, where does the problem lie? The problem lies in many components of the system that are all intermingled. And, and some of those components are human and the human components are incredibly complex to un, un, untangle. Yes. So what was the outcome then for your dad? Yeah. So, so the takeaway from my dad's case is um, we we did drive towards more treatment must be better, and the result was that that my dad um, died with it in about a year, and he and he died of the cancer, and he also died of the side effects of treatment. And a, and a takeaway was that the, the the treatment really had a big effect on him um, physically and also from a quality of life perspective. His, his last year he was in the hospital more than not. Um, he, we wanted to travel and do things with him because we knew his time was short. He couldn't do so because he just physically wasn't up to it. And multiple surgeries, staph infections, pulmonary embolisms, um, all resulted in what you can see as an incredible diminishment physically. And and literally this this was a, a one year picture of, of uh, of, of the effect of both the cancer and the treatment on my father right before his death. Uh, this is so, I'm so sorry you had to go through this and, and I'm sorry your family had to get through this. Uh, and it's, it's the only way I think that we can make uh, big changes when something like this happens to an individual who wants to transform the experience into something that can be beneficial to everybody, which is you know, what you've done. And I'm, you know, on behalf of all of us, I'm grateful that you've undertaken this because I know there's been a tremendous amount of work behind producing something that would appear to be such a simple graph. Uh, so I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about this, the industry and the psychology of the of the patient and the families wanting more treatment rather than less. Um, what would have been the financial implication of this? Had you had your, have your dad elected to, or if a cancer patient had elected to uh, take no treatment, for example, what would have been the change in the cost and the price and everything? Right. At, at 69, my dad was a Medicare patient at the time of his treatment. And so, we all uh, um, carried the burden, effectively, of my dad's treatment that, that when he received it. And when you look at the direct cost of, of, of treatment, um, radiation, chemotherapy, hormone therapy, um, my dad's treatment costs alone were, were, were in the six-figure range. Now, when you look at additional costs associated with the treatment, um, 
staph infection, pulmonary embolism, um, secondary surgeries associated with the staph infection. He had to have part of his bladder removed. Um, he, he ended up in the ICU multiple times, uh, in the ambulance, in the emergency room, um, in the hospital. So if you layer in those additional costs, it would have been well in excess of 250000 So we as a society, for my, for my dad's case and the outcome that we received, you know, we spent around $400,000 in, in providing care to my father and, and uh, in large part directed by a, a, a family that was looking to try to do the best for him that didn't know better. So when we look at the economic implications of, of, of uh, um, opaqueness associated with outcomes, it's significant. So we as, you know, as the buyers of the service, uh, whether individually or as a society, look at that as, as cost, but at the, at the same time, the other side of the equation is that, rev, that hospitals and clinicians look at that as revenue. So I can imagine that your recommendations would not always be well received by the clinicians who, uh, who would want, whilst they still certainly want the best for, your, for the patient, they also may recognize that taking your recommendations may result in a substantial loss of revenue because it's revenue to them. Yeah, in, in the United States, we estimate about 30% of, of of care is is uh, not not helpful. So when you think of that about that from a top line perspective, that's a very significant hit from from an e- economic uh, perspective. And I would argue that we could look at it that way, but we could also look at it as an allocation I- issue. That um, while thirty percent of care isn't helpful, there is a whole other strata of patients that aren't receiving care that otherwise would benefit. So for instance. Um, if, if we look at early stage uh, colon cancer patients, uh, we could the, the the more patients that we could find that that have cancer early stages that we can uh, remove the cancer, we could save the, the 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 patients having to go through additional treatments that would be indicated for after the cancer has spread. And from a system perspective, we could reallocate that and and treat patients at a more effective period during their diagnosis. So putting our economics hat back on, this isn't a zero-sum game. It really is, you know, how can we, we have X amount of capacity to provide, what's the best allocation of the care capacity that we can, that we can provide to help the most people? And I think that, that that's a good way to look at how we can go forward with the system. So I just want to put a fine point on that. So we're saying it's 30% of treatments are either unhelpful or are harmful. And that's a tremendous sum of money and a tremendous number or amount of resources that don't need to be applied to the situations where they are either harmful or unhelpful. And yet if those resources reallocated, we could save a whole bunch more lives if they were simply allocated to people from whom or for whom they would benefit. Right. And so this isn't a question of saying to the medical industry or the healthcare industry, look guys, 
we're not asking that you take the hit all as a, as a single body. We're saying, look, let's treat people more effectively by getting the right people, the right kinds of treatment and, uh, and having them pay for it accordingly or having the industry pay for it accordingly. But let's not give people the treatments that are harmful or unhelpful. Right. And I, I think that's something the whole system can get behind. Um, we could all agree that physicians don't wake up and say, I, I want to do something that, that doesn't help. I mean, they truly are. And it, uh, I'm surrounded by physicians. I work with them every day. They're some of my best friends. You know, not one of them has indicated to me that, hey, I could, you know, I could sell you this procedure. Uh, um, they're really looking at helping patients. That's why they do it. And if we can, if, if we can align incentives in a way that, um, that, that they're allowed to do what they do best, and then we, and then we could help um, the, the, the system run smoother towards allocating those resources. That, that's, a, that's a big ask, but, 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 but there is a potential to do that. But this is an educational issue, and one can imagine, because I, I completely agree with you. I, you know, I've seldom met, I have met some, but um, you know, 99.9% of all physicians and all clinicians generally are very mission-oriented. They're very compassionate. They want to be helpful. That's why they went to med school in the first place. Right. Or they went to nursing school, or they wanted to be a lab tech, or whatever. Uh, they want to help people. And what's, what's unfortunate is those instances where the economic incentives are not necessarily to help people or to do things that they think will help people, but they don't really have enough information to prove that's correct or not correct. So one can imagine that uh, just exposing your tools to medical schools would be enormously helpful for the industry. Have you had any inquiry from med schools to say, hey, come tell us about this? Um, yeah, so, so the tools were born out of... Uh, um, work at medical schools. And one of the um, original works was with Alvin Feinstein, um, who, who did who was a mathematician who be, became a clinician. And he indicated that when he became a clinician, he was shocked because how little rigor was involved in the decisions that he made clinically as compared to when he was a mathematician, he, he would have uh, um, external review and proof done of his work. And so that, that would be a, another way of looking at, at uh, um, clinical outcomes is we would have external validation done effectively, but not just in a, in a broad spectrum approach, meaning that uh, um, all patients fit into the, this, this treatment guidelines, but rather if, what, what if we had um, stratified outcomes by patient groups and stratified outcomes by uh, um, clinical approaches that, that we could reference and then we could have uh, peer review of, of, of those analysis done by clinicians to say, oh, it, at what point generally are people too old? At what point are generally people too sick to, to benefit from these treatments? So it may be interesting to you. I'm, I'm sure you know this already, but for those, of, uh, those who are watching, the medical industry didn't really in, embrace the empirical method uh, or the scientific method prior to Abraham Flexner's report coming out in 1910. And it really was the clinical component of this really didn't come until Sir William Osler 
uh, infused his uh, observations late, you know, much later. So it was around the middle of the 20th century when a lot of these issues came to fore. There were dabblings around it, but it was very inconsistent. What Flexner did is in his evaluation of medical schools in North America said, hey, we're not really training people to be medical doctors in the right way. And so we need to do it a bunch of, uh, you know, a whole different way that led to a whole uh, complete revolution in things like uh, state licensing of physicians and hospitals and, and the like, but uh, it's not been around as, as long as we would think. So the observation from the mathematician uh, is spot on. It's, you know, we're still fairly young in, in understanding medicine, notwithstanding what people may think to the contrary. So uh, let's imagine this. I, I and this is actually let's not imagine this. This is actually a real story. I have a buddy of mine. He came to me uh, over the weekend. He said, "Hey, Todd, uh, my dad was just diagnosed uh, with stage one prostate cancer." Um, you know, and I he asked me for a connection to an oncologist, and I I gave him one. But now he's been uh, connected to MD Anderson, which is a you know big uh, cancer hospital here in Texas, and I think it would be helpful, if not powerful, for him to see the output of your tool. How would an individual go about accessing your tools and your technology? Today, our tools are made available through um, insurance companies and and. Uh, self-insured employers, uh, um, primarily being the sponsors of, of, of this information. And in large part, the self-insured employers are footing the bill for these medical treatments. And A, they want the best outcomes for their employees. And, and B, they want a, a better allocation of costs because healthcare has been so problematic for them from a budget perspective. And so um, we would really encourage individuals to ask their insurance companies, uh, um, ask their employers to allow for outcomes transparency from, from both a cost and a clinical perspective, because um, they're really going to push towards this. Well, individuals are going to care a heck of a lot more about clinical outcomes than they are about the cost, I can imagine, because at the end of the day, everybody wants to get the problem solved so they can live another day, quite literally live another day. Right. Uh, but uh, the, impre- the idea of catalyzing behavior so that, you know, encouraging people to go reach out to their employer and their insurance company is, is important. Now, we live in the United States and our model is, is based on the idea of capitalism, which is, you know, brought to bear a ton of innovation in, in every industry. So I'm not suggesting capitalism is bad at all. But uh, tell me about your experience in talking to other nations about your your technology and your tools, and what's their reaction been? Right, we've been we've been in conversation with a number of uh, of uh, countries that have systems of care. So so unlike the United States, or more of a of a socialist approach to to care. Um, you know, politically, there are arguments around that. We'll just set this aside for, for for the moment and discuss how do they look at it from from an allocation perspective. And it really is. When, when you look at uh, um, systems of care approach, they have X numbers of units of chemotherapy, for instance, to allocate among a population um, in their country over a given period of time. And um, historically that allocation has been tied to 
elements that, that may or may not be useful for, for a determination of who would best be suited for care. So for instance, um, we may cut off patients just based upon one factor, which would be age and say no one over 70 year old is gonna get um, chemotherapy treatment. And, and uh, well, you know, that, that may or may not be a good measure, but let, let's ask an additional question. What if we have a 50 year old that has multiple comorbidities later stage disease, and um, we're gonna allocate a unit to, to this patient, or what about a 70 year old that's otherwise healthy that has early stage disease, and you know, what, what are the outcomes for, for those patients? And so um, a new and different way of looking at it would be rather than casting patients into broad swaths just based upon one factor, which would be age, you know, what, if, what if we added some additional components to this and, and, and looked at allocation based upon in, improving outcomes, improving lives? And so that, that, um, that's the way that, that many of the different systems of care that we've spoken to are, are, are looking at using tools like this. Which is powerful. They're, they're not saying, hey, we just don't want to spend the money or we don't want to give it to you. They're saying, hey, we'd love to spend the money We'd love to give it to you, but it won't help or it may harm. Right. And that's right. a whole different lens. That's a whole different discussion that's, that's, uh, that's better. And in fact, it may not be that, uh, you know, that, that it won't help. It, it, it can't, not getting it could actually extend your life. Right. And, and we as a society in the United States are dealing more and more with these issues. We're, we have an aging population. Um, comorbidities are highly prevalent in the, in the populations that are diagnosed with cancer, for example. And, and so we also as a society, because these patients are by definition, Medicare patients, once they get past 70, which is the average age of diagnosis, you know, even, even though we have a capitalist system here, um, we're all uh, paying for the, the, the Medicare patients, which is the, 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 the largest group of, of, of cancer diagnosis, for instance, that we have in the United States. Wow. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I am so grateful for your spending the time with, with me personally, but also spending time with the audience and sharing the story. Um, it's, it's very moving, but I'm also moved by the noble work you're doing uh, to to take the, the unfortunate experience of your father and leverage it into something that's really beneficial for not only our society here in the United States, but, but really for the world. You're, you're doing important things for the world. And I'm deeply grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And we really appreciate your great questions. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.